Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The reading for this morning comes from Psalm 69, verses 1 through 9 and verses 18 through 23, and the text will be on the screen as I read as well. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Come near and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. May the table set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This is God's word. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Uh, I've never never met you before. I'm Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. A couple announcements before I pray and we dive into Psalm 69. Uh, As you already heard, we're going to have a connection dinner this evening uh, here at the church. The purpose of that dinner is for many of you that are new uh, to Trinity City Church. And for some, some of you, that means you might have been new for months, several months, because it's been Uh, odd time to connect to a church. We invite you to come to this because we want to give you an overview of how you can connect here, some ideas as we start the ministry year in September. And there will be some other families that have been there for uh, a little bit longer uh, that will also be eager to meet with you and uh, share how to connect. I will be there and I love to meet new people. So if we've barely met, if we've barely talked, please come, because you minister to me by going there. So I just made it all about me. Let's turn and try to make it all about God here in a little bit. Uh, we're doing Summer in the Psalms. We do 10 Psalms a summer. Uh, we're wrapping it up in the next couple weeks today, and then next Sunday uh, will get us to Psalm 70. Uh, Psalm 70, by the way, I'm going to use as a way to cast a vision for the next ministry year. Uh, We think about our ministry years much like the academic calendar, and a lot of things start kicking off around here. You start establishing your routines and your schedule, and we start thinking about what is God calling us to this uh, following year uh, to go from essentially September all the way until next 
uh, summer, and I want to talk to you all about that, some of the challenges that our church is facing, some of the things that we're looking forward to and we're hopeful about, some of the things that God is stirring up and doing that's pretty, pretty exciting, and we want to talk about all that next week and use Psalm 70 as a launching point for that. The next sermon series, I promised you last week that I was going to talk about that, is called a wonderful life. And this isn't just to get you ready for Christmas. This is something else, okay? This is, uh, this is the tagline that I have is waking up to the glorious light of restoration. What this sermon series is for me, uh, and maybe even a little bit of background, I wanted to do this sermon series uh, in the fall of 2020, but things were going on that lacked motivation and momentum to be able to really dive into this. Uh, so we took a different route. So I've been wanting to do this sermon series for a while. Uh, you might be wondering, what is it all about? Is it on a book of the Bible? Is it a topic? Uh, and the best way to describe it is like it's a culmination of a bunch of theological mentors that I've had over the years into a framework that really drives each and every sermon and every little bit of how we do ministry here. And it's to cast a big vision and give you exposure to that big vision of God and his mission in a way that wakes us all up by bringing us back to not only the basics of the Christian faith, but the, the weightiness of those basics. And how, when we grab hold of the gospel with our hearts and see it with our eyes, it makes our entire world wake up and we get to see things the way they ought to be. We get to feel what it means to truly be human in the glorious uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's all those things uh, wrapped up into a sermon. And I know it's really meta at this point, but I hope to uh, really bring you into the excitement that I have in a theological framework that's a big God, a big gospel, but then gets in your business in the very details of your life so that there's not one area of your life that's free from the lordship of Jesus. It's all under his lordship. So that's what the next sermon series will be all about. And it will roughly get us to pretty close to the season of Advent uh, when it wraps up. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into Psalm 69. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these saints that have gathered here. Thank you for all those at home that have paused their life to lean in and to hear your gospel again. So Lord, please speak as you always have been doing and always will do. You do not keep silent. You want us to hear your voice this morning again. We want your word to change us, to convict us, to give us hope. Uh, and Lord, even if we feel with many things in our life that we're in over our head, Lord, we pray that uh, the hand of your Son, Jesus Christ, would reach down and pull us up. Lord, help us to do that now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Minnesota, I know cabin culture is a big deal. And many of you that grew up either with families that went to cabins, or maybe you do that in the summer, the summer and you even are outside of uh, Minnesota kind of culture, but you've come here and you're like, you know what, I'm going to embrace it. I'm going to go up to a lake. I'm going to go up to the North Shore and have some fun. Many of us... Uh, understand that culture, but when you go up there with kids, uh, you have this healthy respect for lake life. I grew up uh, going to a cabin in southern Minnesota, which is odd. You think about farmlands, and that's basically all that is down there, except for this little pond that I got to go to, and one of the things that my parents always warned us about uh, is that every one of us will probably get into that lake before we're ready. 
before we were able to swim. And sure enough, like every one of my brothers, my cousins, everybody has this experience where we got into that lake and somebody had to rescue us. Uh, now, before you start getting judgy about my family's parental skills, like you have to understand that it just gets nuts at a lake. There's a lot of things going on. Parents and family, they're trying to relax at the cabin, uh, not just micromanage children all, all the time, but this happens. I have a memory of me uh, leaning over the edge, probably looking at sunfish uh, at the bottom of the lake and just falling off the edge of the, lot, the dock. And then my, my uh, family member just reaches down, grabs me and pulls me up and I didn't have to have CPR or anything. It was real quick. Who have participated in the rescue efforts at my parents' cabin too. I had uh, a cousin that, that went in and I was just up minding my own business talking to an uncle and he kind of looks at me like you got to do something about it and I'm looking at him like it's your kid. Uh, so I actually went down and uh, maybe because I was younger and faster I went down there and, and helped out the situation. This, this metaphor uh, and this experience, very ex uh, vivid experience for me, serves as the metaphor for the opening of this psalm. Uh, the, the psalm is giving this picture of somebody that's in over their head in trouble, specifically King David, who's reflecting on the troubles in his life. Trouble is like water that has come up over our heads, up to our necks and over our heads, and we keep sinking and sinking and sinking with nowhere to put our feet because the deep waters of trouble are engulfing us. And I know that many of you are dealing with that, not only because of these big things that are happening globally and nationally that's outside of your control, but also because the things and suffering of life don't let up even when bigger realities are in place and you feel like you are drowning, you feel like you're in over your head. In this psalm, he, uh, he specifies some of the, the reasons for that feeling. David talks about how people have turned against him, maybe even people that he used to trust or care about. He talks about that his zeal for God's place and God's people is weighing on his soul that he's concerned with the state of God's place and God's people, and that there is even this thirst that David has for relief because the suffering is so difficult and it's so deep that he just wants some relief. So if you're there this morning, this psalm is for you. And just like growing up in a cabin life, this is the reality that if you're not there right now, you will be. You will take your turn of going in and an experience in trouble where you will be in over your head. We're going to approach this psalm <clears throat> a little bit differently than psalms in the past. This psalm, uh, Psalm 69, is quoted numerous times in the New Testament, a lot of different places, uh, so much so I can't go to every single spot where it's been quoted in the New Testament, so we're going to focus on three spots where the Gospel of John either directly quotes a verse from Psalm 69 or has a strong reference to Psalm 69. And the point in that, and the point that the, the New Testament writers saw in Psalm 69 is how everything is fulfilled in Christ. And the purposes of that and the encouragement of that is that God is in control even when we feel in over our heads in trouble. So let's check this out. Look at verses 1 through 4 the opening of the psalm. Save me, O God, from the waters, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. 
I have come into the deep waters. The flood engulfed me. I am wore out, calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail, looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. David is sinking, and he feels sad. The reason why is because enemies hate him without cause. Now, David isn't saying that he's a perfect person. In fact, in the next verse, verse 5, he says, You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. So David admits, I'm a sinner. I have guilt in my life. Yet David is saying that he didn't do anything to sin against these specific people that are coming after him. He didn't, he didn't sin against them. They have no reason to do this. And David is just saying, look, I'm not a perfect person, but there's no warrant for this, this trouble that I find myself in because all these people are coming after me, this large number of enemies who are turning against David and they want to see him destroyed. Now take all those themes in these opening verses and especially keep your eye on uh, that verse, verse 4, those who hate me without reason, because that's going to come up here in the Gospel of John. Look at Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 through 25. Jesus teaches, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will not love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is no, not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they, know, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, as it is. They have seen, and yet they have hated me, hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason, and that's the reference to Psalm 69. In the Gospel, John, world can mean a bunch of different things depending on the context. Here, it means human beings that are collectively in rebellion against God. That's the world. The collective humanity that's in rebellion against God. And Jesus has called his people out of that rebellion, out of the world, to be followers of him. So they no longer belong to that world. But that is exactly why the world takes issues with them, because they don't belong to the world anymore. But Rather, they belong to Jesus. They don't obey the ways of the world anymore, but rather they obey and follow the voice of Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus is doing here is that he's preparing his disciples for what's ahead. He's making sure they understand that because they follow him, that does not translate into an easier life. You follow Jesus does not guarantee that people are going to like you. Uh, getting people to like you is a terrible reason to follow Jesus. And that seems kind of odd because there are things that Jesus advocates for that sometimes the world says, yes, that's a good thing, but there's always going to be moments in history where that's not always the case. 
that there are things that the world believes in that the church opposes because Jesus calls us to a true and better way. So Jesus is preparing his followers. Don't follow me because it's going to make your life better, it's going to make your life easier. In fact, that's not what's going to happen. Since I'm calling you out of this rebellious nature, those that are still caught up in that rebellion will not like you and the things that you believe in and the things that you advocate for. Verse 23 is very important to understand what's going on. Because that surface, just even the language that I just used, just makes it sound like it's this hot religious debate, that it's just another type of tribal war between one group of people and another group of people in our culture wars that continue to happen. But in verse 23, Jesus says that whoever hates me hates my father as well. Hating Jesus and what he teaches and what he stands for isn't just an opposition to a religious opinion. It's opposition to God himself. And if you oppose a Christian who faithfully and lovingly preaches the gospel and the teaching of Jesus, and you hate what's coming out of that Christian's mouth, it's not that Christian's opinion that you hate, but you hate God himself. That's what Jesus is saying. That's how high the stakes are. That's why, I, why it's so important that we are faithful to the, the preaching and teachings of Jesus so that the things that might cause conflict in our personal life, in our mission, in our neighborhoods, is really due to the things that Jesus holds dear in his heart rather than other factors that might cause somebody to get a little fussy with you. Here's what I mean. Let's, let's get down to some specifics. Uh, one of the realities is, is that sometimes people see persecution under rocks that they don't exist. That they, they think they're being persecuted for something that in fact has nothing to do with Jesus, but other factors. Sometimes people don't like us because our personality. We're a little hard to get along. We're a little off around the edges. Jesus still has areas in our life that he needs to transform and make new. And because we're a little prickly sometimes, sometimes people might not like that. That's not the world hating you. That's just you trying to work some things out still with how you relate to other people. Or sometimes somebody might have some friction with you because you have made poor decisions. They don't dislike you in that instance because you're a Christian, but because you might be dumb, all right? There's, there's a difference here. That's not persecution. Or here's one that gets real in our cultural moment. Some people confuse opposition to your political opinions as persecution, when in reality, they just have a different public policy than you, and they've raised that public policy to the level of religious fervor, and so they hate you for your political opinions, but it has nothing to do with your faith. So one of the things we have to be crystal clear on here in the scriptures and what Jesus is teaching, that the opposition is not coming due to your personality, due to your poor choices, or due to your political affiliation. This is happening for theological reasons, for really reasons associated with the scriptures and what Jesus teaches. So for example, you might be in a context where you teach and believe in the very thing that Jesus teaches about marriage, and that upsets people. 
That's okay, and Jesus says that's going to happen. Or I know some of you have this different uh, uh, experience. Maybe you have the same heart that Jesus has towards migrants, and you find yourself around family members or other people that think you're crazy for how you're talking about the Afghan refugee crisis, but you just push back. It's not about public policy. It's just like, I think, I think we should be hospitable. I think our hearts should break. I think we should figure out a way to, to make this work. And in those cases, again, it's not the specifics of public policy that you're advocating for, but just the heart of Jesus towards those that don't have a home because they live in a broken and ravaged world shot through with sin. And that breaks for you because you see yourself in them as well as an exile in Christ. So if those types of convictions about something like marriage or migrants cause a stir in your life, so be it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen from different sides, different people in your life, because when you advocate for the things that Jesus longs for, it's going to upset people that are following the ways of the world. This all is in fulfillment to Psalm 69, verses 4, where it says, they hated me without reason. The Gospel of John wants us to know that Jesus is fulfilling this verse in Psalm 69. David in Psalm 69 is a great king of Israel, but he wasn't perfect. But he didn't do anything again to warrant the response from his enemies. And if these enemies could turn on David, who isn't perfect, then how much more will the world turn on Jesus, who is the true and perfect king? As we see for so many of the themes in Psalm 69, and we see him popping up in the Gospel of John everywhere, a large number of people are turning against Jesus. His enemies possess great worldly power. They bring false charges against Jesus. Yet, Jesus puts all his trust in God the Father. And although sin and death and the evil powers of this world seek to destroy Jesus, it's through his death and his resurrection that he restores a people and a world that he didn't break, but he longs to restore. Let's look at another verse that's fulfilled in the Gospel of John. Look at verses uh, 7 through 9 in Psalm 69. For I have endured scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. One of David's responsibilities as king is to protect and upkeep the temple of God. And that's why David has this zeal that consumes him for God's house because he's responsible for it and he loves God's place and God's people. So when people scorn the temple, he takes it personally. And this zeal for God's house is stirring up all kinds of scorn and insult. In fact, David's own family is treating him like an outsider. And with this context in mind, let's turn to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 14. We'll eventually get to where the verse is quoted, but this is the context of the Gospel of John. When it was almost, well, it's almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, sheep and doves, 
and others sitting at tables exchanging money. One of the reasons that uh, you can wrap your mind around what Jesus is about to do is you have to understand the context and the place this is all taking uh, place in. The Jewish Passover is a big religious festival that's uh, bringing in a bunch of people from out of town and they're going to the temple and they're celebrating. It's a big festival. And this is taking place at a specific instance in a particular court within God's temple. There's more than one court. This court happens to belong to the Gentiles. It's the court where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, come and pursue and seek God. And it's in this court that this commerce is happening, this buying and selling and trading sacrificial animals and also trading currency so that you have the right money to buy these animals. This is taking place in these courts. Now, this is a common practice. It's not odd to go to a religious festival at a temple and that there would be people selling animals that you can sacrifice at the temple and that they're also helping you figure out to have the right currency in order to purchase these animals. That wasn't necessarily bad of in and of itself. The issue in the context is where it's taking place. It's taking place in a space set aside for the Gentiles to pursue God and worship. The issue is that this is out of place. If it was in, a, it was in the marketplace, fine. But it's in God's holy temple, specifically where the Gentiles are pursuing God. This is, this, this is the way that you wrap your mind around it. It's kind of like pineapple on pizza, right? This is the way you think about it. It's out of place. It doesn't belong there. That's disgusting. When, when I, this is one of those things that had it existed in the Old Testament, there certainly would have been an Old Testament law against it because it's missing, mixing two different kinds together. These things don't belong together. Pineapple and pizza. Ugh, gross, okay? So that's the issue, is that the, this type of selling and trading isn't bad in and of itself. It just doesn't belong here, all right? Just like pineapple and pizza. That's what's going on here. And that sets up the scene for how Jesus responds in verses 15 through 17. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, and here's the verse, zeal for your house will consume me. A lot of the discussions about these verses uh, concerns Jesus' supposed freak out. But you have to remember, Jesus is fully divine and fully human. God doesn't freak out. He doesn't lose his temper. So the reason that Jesus is doing this is pure and righteous and just. There's a good reason that he is doing this. You might do it for motives that are not totally pure, but Jesus has a purpose. And like a good prophet of the Old Testament, he's doing this to get our attention. And he wants to shake us a little bit, to snap out of maybe the way that we are falsely worshiping the Lord. The disciples see this and they quote Psalm 69 verse 9 about the zeal that, that Jesus has for God's house. Now why did they think of that verse? Well, again, because Jesus is the true and better king who is protecting God's house. Jesus is the true and better prophet who is advocating 
for the proper use of God's holy temple. In fact, Jesus will go on and teach in the verses that follow here that he is the true and better temple, that although he will be destroyed in three days, he will rise again, and through his death and his resurrection, he will restore God's holy temple and also restore God's people as well. One of the ways I think about uh, applying this to our life is I think sometimes we need to invite Jesus into our own souls to turn over some tables and to mix things up a little bit and to shake us out of some of the weird ways that God's people worship. And some of the ways that you can specifically see this playing out in the the scene in the Gospel of John is that there's, there's three different things that I see going on here. One is that God's people got more concerned with convenience than worship. I'm not sure all the reasons they decided to move it out of the marketplace into this court, but one of the reasons certainly was convenience. And one of the things that I've been encouraged with, with this gathering of people, the folks that are at home that pause their life to lean in to this time of worship, is that there's something so beautiful and scrappy about just saying, you know what, I'm going to make it work. Because there's so much happening with the pandemic and the, 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 the personal like divisions and stuff that maybe the church is experiencing that this, this dedication just to make it work, even though it's not convenient, it's a good thing to figure out like how can I be in this space or how can I make sure that if I'm streaming at home that things need to stop so I can lean in with God's people and worship because sometimes gathering and pausing your life to worship the Lord is difficult and it takes some work and it's scrappy and you are the type of people that have shown this even before a pandemic. This church is a wild one for you to decide to go to. There's no parking lot. There's no air conditioning, and for some reason, it still stays cold in January, right? And you're just like, this sounds like a great church to gather in, right? That is great. It's not always convenient, but you still lean in. Right now in this moment, too, uh, as we're trying to figure out and rebuild Children's Church, many of you have your kiddos with you. You're getting stomped on and spit on and slapped, right? Your pers- the persecution is happening right now in these very pews, right? But you're figuring it out. You're leaning in. It's not ideal. It's not perfect, but you're leaning in because worship isn't always convenient, but it's important. The other thing we see here is that maybe it was just what happened here was just a culmination of bad habits over time that they just stopped critiquing in their own life, that they just didn't take time to pause and say, really, is this the way that God is calling me to worship in truth and in spirit and in love. One thing that I see that's also happening in, in this moment in our, in our not, not, not just our church, but churches in general, is that the last two plus years, have, we've picked up some bad habits. And some of the ways that we were, used to be pretty scrappy about coming to the Lord and worshiping him has now become more challenging. And then we just, over the course of time, stop leaning in because it's difficult or doing a live stream is just kind of weird and I don't get much out of it. And slowly the faucet of true worship starts drying up. And you find yourself in this moment where you can't think of the last time you leaned in to worship with God's people. In fact, you start thinking about like, am I even belonging to a church right now? This isn't theoretical, brothers and sisters. I've seen this happen and other pastors are seeing this happen 
what started out not as like this rebellious thing in somebody's heart to get to a point where they don't belong to a church. That's not what they're thinking on the front end of this. But they're not thinking with a heavy heart about how their habits or lack thereof of true and weekly and daily times of worship in the word and with God's people and pulling back from that is affecting their soul. And slowly and slowly and slowly a bad habit turns into looking around and you're not even belonging to a church community anymore. That's another thing that I see that's happening, and that's how you can get the money changers into the temple courts. The last thing I'll mention in trying to apply this text and hopefully to get zeal for God's house as Jesus has is to think that this particular court that this was happening in was the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jewish people who were outside of the people of God were supposed to go so they could pursue the true God. But the people in charge of these spaces decided it was better to put the of sacrificial animals that they could buy and money changers right there, obstructing the ability of Gentiles to pursue God. And this is something that we always have to assess too as God's people. Are we putting up barriers for those that are really trying to pursue God because it's more convenient for us, that it's more about us, it's more inward in the way that we're thinking about the way that we're doing church. And here we are reminded that part of Christ's zeal for his temple is that it would be a place so that those that are pursuing him in an authentic way would have space to do that, that you would clear it out of all the junk so that those that are in pursuit of God would have a place to do that. And right now, I think in this historical moment, another thing that's, that's tempting for us to do is get really inward right now because it might be getting more difficult to reach your city. It might be getting more uh, challenging to do that. There's so much stuff that's happening in your own life that you need to take care of. But in the process of doing that, you forget that this city and this neighborhood and the campuses around here are full of people that are just looking for a space to find the gospel. And we got to be one of those churches in this moment that opens the doors, removes the barriers, and makes sure that it's crystal clear who we are following and who we're inviting them in to follow as well. Last verse that's quoted, uh, at least for our purposes, from Psalm 69 in the Gospel of John. Look at Psalm 69, verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none, for comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Focus on that last phrase, vinegar for my thirst, because we are going to get to the Gospel of John again here in a bit. The context here is David continues to provide details of his situation. He is scorned, disgraced, and shamed because of his enemies that are after him. He's left it with a broken heart. He is left helpless, and there is no one to comfort him. That's how he describes his situation. David's enemies even put gall in his food and give vinegar for thirst, which is just bitter food and bitter drink. This is stuff that you don't want loaded up in your food, and you ever just straight up drink vinegar? 
That ain't a good thing, right? That's not, that's, that burns, it's disgusting. And that's the idea is that, that his enemies are not providing any relief. In fact, they're making things harder. Now, with that in mind, let's turn again to the Gospel of John. And before I read some verses in uh, chapter 19, let me set up the context here. Pilate is in charge. He's a governing official overseeing the sentencing of Jesus uh, when Jesus is handed over to be crucified. In these verses, it says that the soldiers took charge of Jesus, that they controlled, as it were, his destiny, and they take him to a place to crucify him, to execute him. Once there, they drive nails through his hands and his feet, and they pin him to a cross. He's crucified without his clothing, which is divided up among, his, among the soldiers. He's placed between two other thieves with the, the sign that reads over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's written in multiple languages so that uh, anybody can pass and understand what's happening, and then they can mock Jesus. Pilate, even though that the Jewish leaders are protesting to that sign, he just simply says, I have written what I've written. It's good to stay there. So from start to finish in this context, it seems that Jesus is not in control. Pilate is governing. The soldiers are taking charge of him, dividing up his clothing, and people are mocking him as he dies on the cross. And in this text, John 19, 28 says this, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus says from the cross, I am thirsty. And they put a sponge on a hyssop stalk and they fill it with wine vinegar for him to drink. Some understand what is happening here is that he, or the Roman soldiers rather, are trying to help with pain. But that's probably not what's happening. The Roman soldiers at this point are not interested in helping what they perceive as a criminal dying to help relieve that person's pain. More than likely, they're trying to keep him awake so that the pain and the execution can continue. That's why they offered it, and it's the same thing that's going on in Psalm 69. They're not trying to relieve his pain and his suffering. They're trying to make it worse because from their perspective, again, they're in charge. Reading the Gospels together, Jesus drinks a little bit, then stops drinking, and shortly after, dies. He says, this is finished. And on the surface, it looks like Jesus just received the same fate that any other criminal would have received under the hands of the Romans' governing authorities. The Romans crucified and put Jesus to death. They're in charge, not the person on the cross. Yet you see there this reference to fulfilling Scripture, to fulfilling what was written in Psalm 69. And that is there on purpose. That reference to Psalm 69, verse 21, is there because the, 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 the Gospel of John wants to make it clear that this crucifixion is different. Everything Jesus is doing, even up to the last part of his life, is because of God's plan. Jesus is fulfilling all that God promised to do, down to the details of his thirst. 
Jesus takes the drink not because he's helpless and trying to prolong his life, but rather he did it to fulfill what was written in the Psalms. Jesus is in charge, and he shows that he's in charge not only over the powers of this earthly world, but even the powers of sin and death by taking his life up and rising from the dead. So how do we respond? And we respond the same way, and I'll conclude with this, from Psalm 69, verses 34 through 36. This is how the psalm ends. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah, Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Brothers and sisters and weary saints in these views, hold up your heads. God will save his people in Christ. God will rebuild his church. The next generation will inherit the gospel, and those of us who love Christ will belong to God and dwell with him forever and ever and ever. That's how these verses end, and we know that we can live there and trust that and have hope in that because we see time and time again in the gospel story that God is in charge. He is involved, and he is fulfilling all things in Jesus Christ.